You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Raid. Well, it's Friday again here on Community Radio 3CR. Radical Radio, in fact, 3CR. Broadcasting to you on 855 kHz on your AM dial in Melbourne, Fire all the W's at 3cr.org.au, on 3CR Digital, or from your Victoria Police state-of-the-art surveillance chopper in the skies that does its rounds over Collingwood. However you listen, I hope you survive in lockdown, as well as can be expected in these um, hard times. I know you've got lockdown again down in Melbourne. I'm up in Sydney at the moment um, with a very, very much extended lockdown. But... A few bits of news on the latest military-industrial complex shenanigans later today, um, and a talk with um, Felicity Ruby about Julian Assange's case, which um, was heard in the Old Bailey last night, our time. Oh, sorry, um, I'm recording this on Thursday, Wednesday night, our time. But before that, I am got to tell you about a little call I received from 3CRHQ on beautiful downtown Smith Street early this week, and it's about Radiothon. Yes, it's about Radiothon. It seems that many of the Friday Rose listeners haven't lived up to their pledges this year and have somehow neglected to come good with their promises to chuck a few bucks through CR's way. Now, I understand the lockdown means you're doing it tough, but so is 3CR. So pull your fingers out, or better still, your wallets. Oof. Actually, better still, log into your internet banking program right now as you're listening and siphon off some of the cash you've been saving by not being able to go out partying. Go to 3cr.org.au and follow the very prominently displayed donate links. Now, as it's a lockdown, I'm unable to come over to talk to you personally and assuage any concerns you may individually have about a Friday rave in particular or 3CR in general. So we're just going to have to leave it to your good conscience and better natures. 3CR exists largely on volunteer labour, but we still have expenses. And even the staff we do pay aren't raking them in, for God's sake. And it'd be a shame if one of them had to send their various children's and puppy dogs to the salt mines just because you were too slack to do your bit, wouldn't it? You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. All right, now I'm joined in the studio on a Friday rave by the wonders of modern technology and by Felicity Ruby, who was logged into the feed from Julian Assange's latest trial, which took place in the old dart last night, our time. Strange that, modern technology, it not only enables us to to get up to the minute information about what's happening when it all works well, but it also gives us the tools to get into trouble in the first place. Um, Flick, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you. Always good to be at 3CR. 
in July, um, six months and one day after Julian Assange won his hearing, uh, when there was a ruling that he should not be extradited to the United States because to do so would be oppressive given his mental health status. Um, so six months and one day uh, after that, um, the UK courts did give the United States leave to appeal. And the United States had sought to appeal on five grounds. But in July, six months after he won, the UK court said you can appeal only on three of those grounds. Last night's hearing was a preliminary hearing to discuss and to decide whether the US could appeal on those two grounds. Uh And the UK justice system last night, actually Julian lost last night, and the US is now able to appeal on the five grounds that they chose. Mm -hmm. The judge was really um, strong on the point that the merits of the um, matter are not, were not to be discussed last night. Last night was simply to decide were there reasonable grounds for the US to appeal on those grounds and, and the, the judges overturned the decision in July and to say all five are valid grounds of appeal. I know that the United States seem to be spending a fair bit of time just from following bits of tweets from yourself and other people attacking um, Julian's doctor or psychiatrist. That's right. So um, the first of the two grounds that had been initially rejected um, was regarding the principal psychiatrist's expert um, report and evidence by Professor Kopelman. Now, the US last night said Professor Kopelman had misled the district judge, Baratza, by not acknowledging in his first report that Stella was indeed Julian's partner and the mother of his children. So last night we heard all kinds of personal and very human. Last night, the prosecution, the United States, challenged the principal psychiatric expert that um, Julian's defence team had brought forward, Professor Kopelman, who's a world-renowned expert in clinical psychiatry. And last night, the um, US alleged that he had misled the initial extradition hearing by not acknowledging that Stella was the partner and uh, of Julian and the mother of his two children. While his initial report acknowledged that Julian did have small children and was in a current relationship, that person was not named as Stella. And there was a reason for that. It was because there has been threats against their lives and uh, the matters before the Spanish courts, UC Global, um, were, you know, trying to find out the, um, trying to, uh, you know, obtain the nappies of their children and um, personnel of UC Global had said that that these children were in danger. So there was quite good reason for her identity to not be disclosed at the time. However... But still, still, they did acknowledge that he was in a relationship and that she had two kids. um, However, um, the reasonings and also had made 
um, a supplementary report that acknowledged these things. He also provided his notes, his contemporaneous notes, to the prosecution and to the court. So these matters were not only discussed in the court, they were also discussed in the initial judgment. And the district judge weighed up those reasons and found there to be no reason to question the clinical evidence provided by Professor Koperman. Well, last night the US made great, um, um, it went to great pains to undermine that evidence and to say that it should all be struck out and disregarded because of that one discrepancy. So, um, and ultimately, um, the, uh, the judge found that that was, there was reasonable grounds for that to be part of the appeal. It was not on the, the, the substance of the matter, but just whether it, 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 it gained some grounds for, um, being able to be assessed. The other ground, um, the number four, um, was also um, deemed as part of the package, um, and that was that the district judge erred in her overall assessment of the evidence of the risk of suicide. And that was because Professor Koperman's uh, expert advice was part of that. So basically, we had this some very human and very personal elements of the lives of Julian, Stella and the kids being thrown around as points of law and as scoring points. And it was quite painful to both listen to Stella's voice afterwards reflecting on this, but also to see Julian in the court. So I haven't seen Julian since October 2020 mm. when I visited him. Yeah, well, and... the British justice system does get very personal, but it seldom gets very human. Yeah, it, it, there was a brutality to last night, and um, he was he was not present in the court. He was beamed in by video from Belmarsh Prison, a maximum security prison, where this gentle publisher, where this nonviolent journalist um, lives in a COVID-infested cage um, with terrorists and murderers, basically, um, yeah. but mostly in isolation, 23 and a half hours a day in isolation because of the COVID. So, um, All right, another, another question I want to ask you, Flick, is, um, there's been a lot of, um, been a lot of talk around the commentariat since, um, I think it was June when the U.S.'s main witness, one, um, what's his name? Siddy Throdson, um, recanted a part of his, substantial part of his evidence that the U.S. was using against Julian. Now, was this raised at all last night? Surprisingly, no. So the the evidence and the testimony of a highly regarded medical professional was ripped to shreds. But the main um, uh, the, the, the the main um, witness for the prosecution, who is a, a prosecuted and uh, acknowledged fraudster, thief, and pedophile, um, and who has now admitted to lying to the FBI. Um, and the Department of Justice, that was not raised at all last night. And I can't tell you the irony of that was was strong. This was, however, not the forum for that to be discussed. That will come later. That will come in October. So we now finally have dates for the, 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 the appeal hearing, which will be the 27th and the 28th of October. It is some relief to finally have some dates 
because it should be at that point that Julian walks free. Well, it should be, and even if he does, nonetheless, it's often said that justice delayed is justice denied, and I think we can both, in fact, all three CR listeners would agree that justice has been denied Julian Assange from day one, from not from when he was taken out of the Ecuadorian embassy, but when he was first arrested, was it 12 years ago now, or 11 years ago? Yeah. So something that was discussed in the court last night was the irony of the Biden administration pledging to close Guantanamo Bay, but the person who exposed the horrendous conditions and horrors going there, part of the grounds for reasoning and triggering of that decision, remains behind bars. It's it's just so wrong that this journalist and publisher is languishing there in Belmarsh. His hair is much longer... He's not looking well, um, and he's deteriorating. He's a very strong person, but under the circumstances that he's living, it is no wonder that this Australian is languishing and wasting away in Belmarsh Prison. Okay. Um, Felicity Ruby, thank you for that update. Um, no doubt we'll all be tuning in as to wherever we can on the 27th of October this year. Um, and um, hopefully we look forward to the day when Julian could perhaps come into the studio on two legs in some years to come when he's healed and when all this is behind us all. That's fine, but I want to urge your listeners that until um, October the 27th and 28th, we have plenty of opportunities to call on the Biden administration to drop these charges and to call on our government to pressure the Biden administration to drop these charges and to call on our very own parliamentarians to join the Bring Assange Home Parliamentary Group and to make as much noise as possible and educate yourself about this issue, including by possibly reading Scott Ludlam's excellent cover essay in this month's monthly. (laughs) Okay, well, no worries. I'll have, I reckon I might talk to Scott Ludlam in the coming weeks about not just his article, but his book. So thanks again for joining us, Flick, and um, we'll get some more updates closer to October. Thanks. Now I need to apologise, first of all, for the quality of the sound and choppiness of that yarn I had with um, Felicity Ruby. We were um, using the wonders of modern technology that sometimes are wonderful and sometimes aren't all that wonderful, and this was one of the latter cases. I don't know if it's because of where she was or because of where I was, but there you go. What she had to say was worth listening to anyway. And now back in 2014, um, on to our next little topic here today, the federal government set up a thing called the Indigenous Advancement Strategy. The idea was for it to be used as something like a slush fund to, as the name suggests, spend on projects that would advance the situation Indigenous people find themselves in. A lot of it went to the usual big business mates of the government to do things like employ people, people they need to employ anyway. And um, even worse, to help them develop their own internal Indigenous advancement strategies that often just ended there, with enough bullshit produced to acquit their funding and promote their business as caring for Indigenous people. 
Now, Senator Lydia Thorpe raised the issue in Senate estimates earlier in the year when it was found that Crown Casino had received about $3.5 million under the scheme. You know, as if they need money to employ Indigenous people. But anyway, other beneficiaries included West Farmers, um, Fortescue Medals, Woolworths and Accor Hotels. Now, in 2019, five years later, the advancement strategy, which had been administered by the Prime Minister's Department's um, Indigenous Affairs Group, was moved to the newly created National Indigenous Australians Agency, remaining in the PM's department, and an additional five bill was allocated. He heard me right, five bill, along with the development of the um, Indigenous Procurement Policy, which was a new policy which made exemptions to the Discrimination Acts to enable the federal government to award contracts to businesses which met a mandatory minimum um, Indigenous engagement level, which is... God, I was going to go into the requirements um, right now, but it's all, just looking through this paper I've got in front of me, it's all in such gobbledygook, so complicated, depending on the industry. You're just going to have to accept that they're not that stringent, okay? Anyhow, so far so good. I think most 3CR listeners would agree that the government should award contracts to both Indigenous-owned businesses and those with a high level of Indigenous employment or engagement as a priority. But like much of what this government does, it's high on the marketing and sought on substance, as Lydia Thorpe pointed out in her set of estimate rave earlier this year. But it's even worse than it looks, people. It's even worse than that. What brought all this to my attention this week was the announcement that an Indigenous construction company, BARPA, has been awarded a $26 million contract to upgrade some infrastructure at HMAS Waterhen. Now, Waterhen by the way, is the Navy's mine warfare base on Sydney's lower North Shore. Pretty much opposite Balmain, for those who know the city. Uh, no, Sydney anyway, a bit. It doesn't really matter what the base does for the purpose of this rave, except to say that with all the military build-up looking to the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait that I was raving about last week, don't think for a moment that the upgrade to the Navy's mine warfare centre is unrelated. Anyhow... In Defence Industry Minister um, Melissa Price's presser this week, she mentioned that in the last financial year alone, the Department of Defence awarded 3,500 contracts, totaling half a billion dollars to Indigenous businesses. And in the life of the Indigenous procurement policy, about half of all this government spending came from the Department of Defence, about a cool $2 billion. So you know me, I had to have a nosy around. And the first thing I naturally did was went and have a look at the Prime Minister's National Indigenous Australians Agency to see what's what and who's who. Now, I didn't have to look that deep, as it turns out. The inaugural Chief Executive Officer of the agency was none other than former Vice Chief of the Defence Force, a bloke by the name of Ray Griggs. That's Griggsy to his mates, Vice Admiral Raymond Griggs to you. And Vice Admiral Raymond Griggs moved on last month to become Secretary of the Department of Social Services, just by the way, another example of the militarisation of Australian society and the whole revolving door system that we have here. I can't tell you who the new boss at the Indigenous Agency is because they haven't announced it yet. But there are a few ex-military boffins, blokes like David Johnson or Michael Noonan, that are just coming to the end of their service. So unless they're picked up by an arms company or a university, I reckon it'll be one of them. 
Anyhow, the Indigenous Australians Agency, headed up by a white bloke in a white naval uniform, seems to have had a greater than average interest in military procurement. I wonder why. On this, first of all, a diversion. Quite a while back, a couple of years ago on a Friday rave, I spoke about an issue that had people getting in touch to have a crack at me, even more than when I speak about, well, Israel. And that's when I spoke about everybody's hero, Adam Goods. Now, Goods, while nothing should be taken away from the work he has done against racism in sport, has another side to his persona. We're all complicated human beings. The other side to Goods' persona is as the CEO of an outfit called the Indigenous Defence and Infrastructure Consortium. Michael McLeod is the chairman, by the way, and Goods' younger brother, Brett, is the uh, manager for the South Australian and Northern Territory business. Now, what the IDIC does is act as what it calls itself anyway, a supply chain aggregator, basically acting as a business agent for Indigenous businesses and helping them to land contracts. And, of course, it's a capitalist enterprise, after all, take a cut. And not only in one direction, understanding that many small Indigenous businesses don't have the capability or experience and wherewithal to deal with multinational warmongers, they act on their behalf as well. They partner up with contractors, prime contractors like BAE, LADOS, Arup and the like, and get Indigenous businesses to provide services, or at least tender, thereby helping the corporation fulfil its mandatory minimum Indigenous engagement requirements to get either grants aimed at insisting Indigenous people, or preferred tender status based on their engagement while bumping up costs, or at least not having to compete with costs, or all of the above. But it's not as if there are all these Indigenous-owned military engineering consultancy businesses out there, so they encourage and help set up businesses, in fact, to tender for military projects. But then, I suppose the good news is they don't seem that successful. Their website's catalogue only contains health and safety signage and equipment branded as BAE Systems, but from a third-party supplier, and all the equipment comes from China. Well, don't know about all of it, I haven't looked at every piece of it, but anyway, at least most of it. But nonetheless, the third-party supplier, a mob called Integrity Health and Safety, has an Indigenous engagement policy and a website, like the IDIC's, dripping in Indigenous colours and imagery. Ah, and it was started by two blokes who were described as Indigenous Intensive Care Paramedics, who gained a lot of their experience, guess where? I don't have to tell you, you've already guessed. The Australian Defence Force. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the whole Indigenous Defence and Infrastructure Consortium is nothing but an absolute shameless scam, diverting money that the government claims is for Indigenous advancement right back into the complex web of cronyism that is the Australian end of the military-industrial complex. In this, it not only adds absolutely nothing to Indigenous communities, in fact, any money that does end up in Indigenous pockets are individual pockets rather than community ones, and it's just another way that the neoliberal shit show that is Australian society places the value of an individual above that of the community. It's okay, apparently, to get government business grants if you're a black fella, as long as you act like a white one. The Christian assimilationists had nothing on this current mob. Well, hang on. Morrison's government, they are Christian assimilationists, aren't they? Now, I'll go even further now that I mention Morrison and say that the government is in on it. And the only reason 
that they publicly earmark money for Indigenous advancement and have positive discrimination procurement policies at all is because they know the outfits like the IDIC are in place to take the cash and divert it right back to the government's warmongering mates where it was always going to end up anyway. And then, of course... Some of it probably ends up back in the Liberal and Labor Party's collective coppers in the form of political donations from some of the largest, ugliest, evilest corporate death merchant that history has ever known. Too far? No, not far enough. And the kicker is that they can then claim that they're doing the right thing by our Indigenous people. It makes me sick in the guts. Having got that little diversion off my chest, you're listening to Radical Radio, Community Radio, 3CR, 855 kilohertz. But back to the little story that started me on the rant. The awarding of a $26 million contract to BARPA to upgrade some infrastructure at their mine warfare centre on some of the prettiest urban environment on the planet, Sydney Harbour. I had a little dig around BARPA as well, and here's a list of most of their recent work. Now, just... Um, Sit back and listen to the list, actually. The Cairns Las Palmas Motel had accommodation works undertaken by BARPA, paid for by Defence, as it's used as accommodation by sailors from HMAS Cairns, as is the Northern Heritage Motel in Cairns, where they put in the new walk-in fridge-freezer. At the HMAS Cairns base itself, on Trinity Inlet, which is home to nine warships, BARPA did some building fire safety work, and over at Raff Tyndall, near Catherine, one of the most important bases in the country and home to the Air Combat Group 75 Squadron, BARPA refurbished Estrem in Paul for a cool $9 million. Um, they upgraded the fuel tanks over at RAAF Curtin near Derby, where the Refugee Detention Centre used to be, for another nine and a bit million. And then back in the Territory, they upgraded some meeting rooms at the Robertson Barracks for another 10 mil to bring it up to the standard, I guess, expected by the US Marine Station there. And they did another million's worth while they were there in the sergeant's mess. They did some fencing work at Raf Schreger up on Cape York and dozens of other defence projects, from satellite bases in the Territory to co-working offices in Melbourne, heritage building works in the bush and proving grounds and underwater weapons testing base. I didn't even know we had one in Victoria. They do other work too, though it's not strictly for defence, stuff like working on ANSTOs, and that's the Australian Nuclear and Scientific Organisation for the Uninitiated, and Stowe's Lucas Heights Nuclear Research Plant. And they did some work on the waste management system. And they built a super secure facility inside the already secure facility, the Andrew Fisher Building at One National Circuit in Canberra, home to the PM's department. And a bit of non-defence work at places like Hay Health and Nacho, the um, National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation in Canberra. But their non-defence work is really marginal and mainly Indigenous-specific. Now, BARPA is a majority-owned Indigenous business formed in 2014 by the Victorian Traditional Owners Association. And I'm not claiming it's a scam like the IDIC lot. But the questions are, why does so much of the money actually spent on Indigenous businesses end up being in the defence sector? Why is more than half the money spent on the various Indigenous business assistance program by this government end up being spent in the defence sector? Not to mention questions like, why does the government think that the best way to help Indigenous communities is to plough money into businesses? Or when are the assimilation policies of these colonisers ever going to end? And why, 
in this land, and as my mate Robbie Thorpe has been telling us for years, is actually a foreign military occupation and a crime scene, do we think that the way to help Indigenous populations in this country is to get them to work on bloody military bases? And finally, why the hell isn't this even an issue? as we face the twin demons of, on the one hand, the highest rates of black deaths in custody and forced removal of children ever, along with the ongoing assault on decency that is the Northern Territory intervention and land grabs for rare earths occurring monthly, and on the other hand, a mad headlong rush towards gearing up for a war with China that we would never win, even in Defence Minister Peter Drutton's sloppiest wet dreams. So the next time you hear words like closing a bloody gap, don't fall for keywords and black, red and yellow business cards with Luru on them. Do what you should do for any government announcement. Follow the money. Because I reckon I can tell you right now where a pretty big chunk of it is going to end up. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Yes, Radical Radio 3CR. That's all I've got time for today. As ever, my name's been Jacob. This has been a Friday rave. More next week. 